Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners on what to expect in the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendet, part of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses, who is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Sam, uh, always great having you on the program. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Vago. Glad to be back. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium. Uh, Sam, uh, Russia claims to have struck 300 military targets across Ukraine, uh, including in Kiev, uh, just yesterday, Mariupol is uh, barely uh, hanging on, although Ukrainian forces scored uh, a major public relations coup by sinking uh, the Moskva, uh, the uh, cruiser that was the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. It was built in 1979 in Mykolaiv uh, as the Slava or Glory. So double hit there in terms of you know, sinking a, a ship who's uh, named after the Russian capital uh, and its original name was was Glory. Uh, I want to get to all of that uh, in a minute. But where do we stand now in terms of uh, where we are in the war, the disposition of Ukrainian forces and the broader repositioning of Russian forces to the east? Most of the fighting is now concentrated in Russia's east, in and around Donbass. There's fierce fighting around Mariupol. It looks like the Russian forces have almost taken the city. Uh, there's still some resistance in the pockets, but it appears that um, their um, control of the city is probably close at hand in the coming days. They've poured a lot of resources into that fight, and that seems to be paying off. Russian forces are concentrated in the Donbass. They're, they're pulling up more resources. Uh, they're pull, they're uh, repositioning men, soldiers, materiel, equipment into the Donbass area. But the Russian uh, soldiers aren't necessarily winning everywhere. Uh, it looks like the Ukrainian forces were able to launch several limited counterattacks in and around Kharkiv and also in the Donbas. But most of the fighting is now in the country's east, and this is where Russia will concentrate most of their resources in the coming days and weeks. And our um, you know, there's a lot written about how many uh, equipment Western powers uh, are donating, uh, and it's uh, welcome, but 18, for example, 155 uh, millimeter howitzers and 40,000 rounds among the systems the U.S. is transferring. Russia has given a formal uh, demand to the United States, a diplomatic demand to the United States and its allies uh, to stop uh, supplying weapons. Otherwise, uh, it will uh, attack somewhat vague where he wants to attack them, whether he wants to attack them in Ukraine or, or elsewhere. How important are these systems? And I want to get to Ukrainian home-built systems, uh, unmanned and otherwise, in, in, a, in a moment. But you know, we should point out that Moskva was sunk uh, by two Ukrainian Neptune uh, missiles. How important is this Western aid to keeping Ukraine uh, current, engaged, and on, on the positive side of the ledger uh, in, in, in terms of fighting against the Russians? Well, of course, it's important. Ukrainian forces, just like the Russian forces, are exhausted. Ukrainians also lost a lot of equipment, a lot of weapons. They lost a lot of troops as well. So anything that they can use 
immediately anything that can make a significant impact on the battlefield is welcome. I think what the Ukrainians want right now is more of that kind of at scale, not just few deliveries, but um, much, much more. They want more advanced weapons, more sophisticated weapons, because they feel that as long as the Russian force is uh, repositioning and regrouping in the east, and as long as the Russian advance is sort of limited to missile strikes, not to the actual ground combat, which is very exhausting to both sides, as long as Russia is uh, trying to reposition and reorganize, Ukrainians can still apply pressure. And we see that pressure applied in limited counterattacks, which are proving rather successful. We also see that pressure applied with with deaths of not just lieutenant colonels and colonels, but looks like um, the death tally of Russian generals is growing as well. So anything that the Ukrainians can use immediately and to a great effect is very much welcome. Um, talk to us a little bit about the loss of Moskva uh, and what it means. Obviously, it was a command ship. Uh, it was also supposed to provide air and missile uh, defense. Clearly, it was unable to defend itself against two subsonic anti-ship missiles. As a friend of mine put it, not a good look at a time when we're talking about hypersonic threats. How important was Moskva to Russia's uh, operation? Why was it by itself an undefended? Uh, and what does its loss ultimately mean? I think you're asking the questions that a lot of people will be asking going forward. There are no easy answers to many of them. Yes, uh, it is a mystery why Moskva appeared to be unescorted. Uh, there's a mystery why it didn't have adequate air cover. It, it, it was tracking what appeared to be a, um, a Bayraktar drone that was kind of buzzing its uh, AOR, its area of operations. Uh, but it did not appear to track Ukrainian missiles going forward. It's also unclear if the missiles by themselves were able to sink the ships or the missiles struck the vessel and caused enough damage for the subsequent sinking because a ship like that carries a lot of um, munitions, a lot of weapons and a lot of missiles on board. So any explosion could be potentially fatal. I think the sinking of the ship is more symbolic than realistic. Um, after all, Moscow had limited impact on actual ground combat and on the actual situation in Southern Ukraine. But again, uh, there's definitely there's a definitive symbology here, as you indicated yourself, the city, uh, I mean, the ship is named after the capital city of the country that attacked Ukraine. Um, its past name is Glory. So uh, this was a flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. And so there's a lot of anger, a lot of resentment in Russia. I want to point out that there's a social media um, video that's kind of making the rounds right now. And it's a uh, former Special Forces Russian soldier who's addressing the Russian president uh, and is asking directly what their country, what his country is doing in Ukraine, whether it's actually fighting a war or whether it is jacking off basically. Uh, and that's his exact words. Uh, a lot of people in Russia are starting to kind of ask, where is the real action? Why isn't their country doing what it should be doing in a conflict of the size and scale? And why so many mistakes are not just uh, made, but they keep piling up from the deaths of um, many um, flagship officers um, and, uh, and high profile military personnel to the sinking of the ship. After all, um, if Russia was to operate in Ukraine based on its earlier sort of training and exercises and concept of operations, that sinking probably shouldn't have taken place. So there's more questions and answers. And I think um, the 
people in Russia right now, including some of its media personalities, are becoming a little more vocal as the evidence of the mistakes and the evidence of missteps is piling up more and more. Um, I should uh, point out that Russia originally said it was an ammunition handling uh, issue, which doesn't reflect well uh, either. Um, right. We right. Were... And if it was, if it was right, if it was, uh, then why weren't safety procedures and other right. other procedures and training followed? If it, indeed it was not a Ukrainian missile that struck the ship, if, if the uh, accident took place on Moskva, then what steps were not followed? so that this accident led to the sinking of the ship and the deaths of possibly hundreds of sailors. Uh, that's right. I mean, there were reports that say something like 450 of 512 on the crew uh, may have perished. Do we know any, uh, very briefly, do we know anything um, more about whether nuclear weapons were on the ships? Because obviously the Russians have uh, still a very large tactical nuclear arsenal and it's, it's part of the Russian order of battle. Do we know whether the ship was actually carrying them? There were some early news reports that uh, express concern that she may have been carrying nuclear weapons. It doesn't appear to be the case. And until we have the proof, we probably shouldn't add to the um, to the rumors about what Moskva was and was not carrying. Um, let's move uh, to what is going to be next uh, and, and Russia's war aims, uh, Sam. Uh, there are those, you know, in the beginning, there were folks who said, oh, you know, he just wants to grab the Mariupol, you know, that corridor connect Crimea, take Luhansk, Donbass, uh, a corridor to have a land bridge to uh, Crimea, then there was the sense that it's going to be a broader invasion that's going to take the entire country. Now it's focusing again on the east. What, what should we expect next? And is Putin's goal just to take the east? Or is Putin's goal actually to take the east as part, then regroup and take the rest of Ukraine? Because obviously there is now going to be another drive toward uh, Odessa. Uh, obviously, Russia wants to take the entire Black Sea coast to be able to cut the cut Ukraine off from the global economy. What's the expectation on what the next phases of this are? And there was this sense that Russia wanted everything wrapped up before Easter. Uh, that is not happening. And now it looks like uh, May 9 is uh, the next day, obviously, Victory Day. What, what, what do we expect to see? And is the campaign actually not as isolated to the East, that's not the right way to think about it, that it is still a campaign to try to take all of Ukraine or depopulate as much of Ukraine as possible and leave it as destroyed as possible? Well, if the original aim was to take all of Ukraine, it doesn't appear to be realistic at this point. Russian military is exhausted and lost a lot. It needs to regroup. It is regrouping. It is reorganizing in the East. And there appears to be preparation for a concentrated push westward to take more of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. I don't think the Russian military today has enough uh, resources left for a, a continued drive all the way west, sort of to the Polish border. Um, again, that is why the Russian government is revising its aims because originally it was all about the regime change in Ukraine. Now it's all about the control of Donetsk and Lugansk. And, um, further control of the regions that Russia has so far conquered in the north, east of the country, and in the south as well. Um, again, um, obviously the war caused a lot of suffering, it caused a lot of damage, it caused uh, millions of people to flee, but many are still remaining. In fact, when the siege of Kiev was lifted, uh, that was a huge moral and tactical victory as well. Um, with other countries concerned about the state of fighting, such as um, 
Belarus expressing official concern that there's going to be a renewed sort of phase of fighting uh, immediately to their south in Ukraine, with the world becoming more united in their response, with Europe becoming more united in their resolve to aid the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian military. At this point in time, it does not appear that Putin's original plan for the full control of Ukraine is realistic. However, enough damage was caused to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian economy, to the Ukrainian people, so that its recovery would be decades in the making and at a huge cost. So that part of that aim to weaken Ukraine has been achieved through the destruction of civilian economic infrastructure, through continued attrition of the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian military assets. But again, the main aim right now, according to the Russian government, is to take the rest of Donbass and uh, consolidate the gains already made. You know, you said more and more Russian media personalities are questioning how the war is is going. Obviously, Russians uh, are are trapped in the narrative because independent media sources have been cut off. Uh, and indeed, Russians are also feeling the pressure of, of basically neo-Stalinism uh, taking over uh, the country. Um, right. People reporting each other for violations, just like S Soviet days. Uh, and that unfortunately becomes we, we know that that doesn't end up going anywhere uh, fast. But I'm also very skeptical about polling. You know, as I'm fond of saying, you know, Brezhnev polled well also and, and the Soviet people and the Russian people hated Brezhnev as well. Where, where, where do we fall on how this is going to affect Putin, those around him? Because every day brings revelations, you know, whether Shoigu had a real heart attack or a Soviet style heart attack or, or um, you know, people around him being uh, arrested, whether they're KGB or general uh, officers, you know, ultimately the problem with the dictatorship is there's nobody else to blame. You're ultimately the one that's responsible. Um, how, how is all of this reflecting on Putin? Well, he does not appear to be shaken. And he does not appear to be in danger of uh, anything at the, at the moment. I think what we have to watch for are more and more questions from not just regular people, but sort of high profile media personalities asking why this war is taking so long. And as you indicated, as uh, with each passing day, the evidence of um, losses and the steps is piling up, more and more people are going to be asking why this is happening. Yes, we cannot fully trust Russian polls. But at the same time, there's enough evidence, even on state media, where enough concern is expressed now openly and publicly for the government to be truly concerned. Um, my team at CNA and I myself, we follow Russian artificial intelligence, autonomous, and then high-tech and IT developments, information, communication technology developments. And there's a lot, a lot of alarms ringing in Russia because the global sanctions have put a stop or have slowed down significantly a lot of Russia's IT growth, which is absolutely necessary for any modern country and society right now. And so there's enough evidence in open source Russian media where enough concern is expressed, even in a careful way, for all of that to worry the government. Um, and even some of that concern is expressed in the uh, Russian media, um, uh, in, 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 the, in the official Russian um, television stations and across Russian uh, programs, which used to be 100% for the government. But now, again, as people start asking questions, why it's taking so long, 
why Russia is taking so many losses, that type of sentiment can actually pile up. And then the government will have to deal uh, with that in one way or another. Uh, let me ask you one last question. This is very much a drone war, whether uh, the Ukrainian use of the Bayraktar, uh, whether it's homemade uh, systems, um, and including what the Russians are doing using uh, Uran, Ochotnik, and, and other uh, systems. Walk, walk us through um, the UAV space and what we see that's going on there, and, and how actually, you know, everybody tends to be very OPSEC-focused but these systems are proving to be pretty successful, even without the highest degree of operational security. That's correct. And Ukraine now, as any modern conflict, um, is part of the larger sort of global drone war. Uh, no conflict today, no military conflict takes place without drones. That's just the reality. And Russian military went into this war with its uh, roster of military-grade UAVs, the Inakhodets so or the Orion, the four-post R, heavy drones, that deliver strikes, numerous Orlan 10 UAVs for intelligence gathering and situational awareness, other smaller models as well. Uh, Ukrainians, of course, have been very successful with fielding of their Turkish-made Bayraktar combat UAVs. Much has been written and said about that. Um, but both Ukrainians and the Russians, not just, um, not just the Russian troops, but also their allies, uh, the Donetsk forces and the Chechen forces that have been deployed out of Chechnya, into Ukraine are using your regular type commercial Chinese-made DJI drone, the Mavic model, which is one of the easiest and most widespread drones to use. So not only are there military drones operating over Ukraine, but right next to them, you have um, unsecured civilian drones with unsecured communications and, and other um, sort of strictly civilian aspects. And that doesn't appear to bother either Ukrainians or the Russians, because this is all about the capability right now with fighting uh, concentrated so much on the ground, house to house, street to street, anything that you can use to gain advantage over the adversary is going to be put in the field. And these very easy to use, cheap commercial DJI drones are now widespread. And what's interesting is that Russians were, Russian military rather, was uh, publicly discussing the use of quadrocopters going back to 2019 how they should be integrated into the concept of operations. But so far, all the uh, Russian losses were of, of military-grade UAVs, at least those losses that were recorded. Um, we see plenty of social media evidence of all sides using these Chinese DJI drones. And this is the combat reality of today, reality that's been recognized by the United States Department of Defense, by, pro by probably every military out there, by any force that has something to prove um, in order to sort of gain uh, an advantage in combat. And so we're going to see this going forward. This is going to become an inseparable part of any type of war or conflict going forward. The appearance of civilian drones, probably Chinese-made drones going forward by all sides. And they're using them for intelligence gathering, surveillance, guiding their forces to targets um, and, and other, um, and even military um, missions as well, such as just dropping grenades and munitions from these uh, simple uh, UAVs. Right. And this is, the, again, this is something that um, was obviously foretold before. Um, none of this is a surprise. What's surprising is the extent of this use by the Russians, actually. I don't blame the, the defenders trying to gain any advantage, but the Russians probably should know better. Their forces should be using more 
um, military-grade equipment. But it appears that alongside of that military-grade equipment, they're also using strictly commercial applications. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for uh, joining us again and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And joining us as he does uh, almost every Monday is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to tell us what to expect in the week ahead and discuss whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Byron, hope uh, you and the family had a very, very happy Easter. uh, And thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here, Vago. Uh, indeed, it wouldn't be Monday if uh, we didn't have an opportunity to uh, talk. Uh, interest, a great note, a uh, couple of great notes, actually. Uh, so first, let's talk about the budget. Um, you know, we've been talking about uh, the sentiment that uh, Michael Herson expressed uh, on our Washington roundtable week before last, uh, saying, look, I mean, the, the budget number could be 90 to $100 billion higher than the administration is asking for. Uh, you wrote a thoughtful note that said, well, hang on a second, let's kind of think this through for a second. Uh, how, how much upside do you think there's going to be of that amount? Because it seems like it could be a high negotiating number, certainly would be welcome for the administration to be, say, 60 or 70 billion higher, because then it could take care of inflation uh, pressures, even though Mike McCord says uh, that the department is somewhat insulated from that. Sort of take us into the various scenarios you considered in your note. Well, first, Bob, before I talk about that, I've just got to, you know, mark the date on the calendar that today is the 80th anniversary of the Doolittle Raid. Uh, 16 B-25s were launched from the Hornet. Um, the, the concept of the operation, the actual operation itself, took 98 days. Um, so I think, you know, speed and alacrity mattered then as much as it matters today. Uh, it was the first use of the B-25 in combat, and obviously they'd never taken off from an aircraft carrier before. And, you know, just a reminder, when those aircraft were launched, they couldn't land on the aircraft carrier. I mean, it was it's a very daring mission, and uh, it's interesting the B-21 is named after that, the B-21 Raider, for that, that operation. I, I should also point out that the uh, raid cost, call, caught the Japanese uh, by such surprise that it actually tied down enormous numbers, amounts of resources uh, because they were like, holy cow, you know, we, we, we got uh, we got struck uh, from somewhere um, and and was uh, certainly one of the most uh, innovative uses of, of air power and, and the melding of uh, Army Navy cooperation, Byron, air sea battle uh, at work. Yep. Yep. And, you know, may have led to the Battle of Midway, which was arguably a, a turning point for the uh, carrier fleet of the Japanese Navy. Uh, Anyway, on to the budget, Vago. <laughs> um, look, I, it, it's possible, um, you know, if, if Michael's correct, and I know uh, Senator Warren, the Democrat from Massachusetts, also raised this uh, or floated this during the Senate Armed Services Committee that was held, uh, I believe it was April 7th, that, you know, a number of that magnitude was being proposed by the GOP. Um, there are a couple of thoughts on it. First, is it possible? Yes. I mean, you are talking about a midterm election year. Um, it could be used as leverage for more non-defense discretionary spending. You know, we had these arguments for parity, really going back to the Budget Control Act days. And, you know, the, the administration had proposed a budget with more non-discretion, non-defense discretionary funding than defense spending. Um, 
so you know that that can work both ways uh you know but but the concerns that i would have on it are well first you really don't know what the inflation rate is going to be in fiscal year 23 um you don't know how quickly industry could absorb that number. Uh, you know, I think the presumption would be a lot of this is going to go towards procurement, research, and development, test and evaluation, uh, and operations and maintenance. There are already, you know, some issues about how quickly industry uh, could could deal with the current pace of of uh, defense spending growth because of the supply chain issues. Um, you know, where do you get skilled engineers and frankly, people in, in the trades and crafts too. And I think, you know, as Warren kind of put out there during the, during the hearing, um, there is an issue about share buybacks, you know, industry profitability, you know, and you see this has kind of popped up with the pharmaceutical industry and you've seen it pop up with the semiconductor industry. <clears throat> when you see these large spending increases um, for uh, things that industry might be doing on its own, uh, you know, more capital investment, for example, um, that that can have some negative feedback as well, too. So, I, I agree, it's possible, um, but it could have some unintended consequences. And I think, you know, I'll say one final thing. <clears throat> I'm right about this. I mean, I still think we're in a period of transition um, with with what the future security threat environment is going to be. You never are going to be able to <clears throat> say here it is, you know, in one neat little package, but, uh, you know, what is Russia really going to look like in June, July, or August, particularly if the Ukrainians continue to drub them the way they've been <clears throat> drumming the Russian forces? Um, you know, is, is there a different uh, look to Russia? I don't want to, the, the budget process can't wait for that, but there could be some very different outcomes that have some very different ramifications for what the US and frankly Europe ought to be spending uh, defense dollars on. You have to be careful about drawing immediate conclusions, right? I mean, the United States, for example, would fight very differently, right? Army aviation leaders point out, we would use helicopters very differently and not be as vulnerable. We believe in infantry backing armor so that you have a way to clean up and try to minimize, um, um, you know, the efficacy of uh, anti-tank weapons. Right? I mean, in, in some respects, this is an Israeli problem. The Russians are driving tanks the way the Israel, Israel army was driving them in 73 and got clobbered by saggers. Um, right. How do we how are we thinking as clearly enough about what that future battlefield environment is going to look like? Because Moskva was sunk by two, you know, subsonic anti-ship missiles. It was effectively sunk by sunk by two Exocet style missiles. Almost forty years, almost forty years to the day from the Falkland Islands war. Well, that kind of gets to the overall level of competence or incompetence that the, the Russian military has displayed. Um, you know, I don't think we'd put a Ticonderoga class cruiser. Uh, you know, 100 kilometers off the coast of China and, and think that it, you know, was going to be safe. I mean, th there's a lot we don't know about that particular strike right now. You know, you needed <laughs> clearly, you know, just don't fire those missiles from their uh, coastal garrisons. There had to be some kind of targeting information um, <clears throat> to provide those missiles uh, course and direction. And I, I just think there are a lot of things uh, that Russia is showing the world how not to do. Um, but I, I, I think it's more the broader question about, you know, is Russia, what, 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 what are they going to be 
as a military power. Um, and, and, you know, what's their ability to project power, for example, into the Baltics, uh, further into Ukraine? I mean, how quickly, how, how badly harmed will their defense sector be? I thought it was very interesting that the, uh, I saw the Indian government canceled a helicopter buy from Russia and um, Indian defense stocks are up because India talked about sourcing more of their own um, production from Indian firms. So there are ramifications here that uh, I think are, are just gonna be important to kind of sift through. Um, and maybe there is gonna be some lessons learned about, you know, well, how there've been some exercises that I'm aware of. Um, Rusi had written one up that I believe took place at the National Training Center. <laughs> that also really used small dispersed individual teams that were able to call fires on targets um, and they cleaned the clocks of the, of the um, blue force in this particular exercise. I believe that would, that's happened in 2021. Uh, so again, you know, where's, where's technology going to take you, you know, what, but I, but I think the bigger question for me at least is, <clears throat> you know, there is one, set of assumptions about the Russian threat uh, in, you know, January 2022, and there could potentially be a very different set of assumptions uh, in July or August this year. And again, you know, how that plays through to what we ought to be doing or prioritizing in the FY23 budget, you know, will we need more missile defense, for example? Uh, you know, is that an area that uh, a Russia that's kind of cut down to size um, that they're going to look more like the Iranian or North Korean military. And that's, that's where they're going to be able to try and inflict harm on other countries. And I, it came up in, I believe, the House Armed Services Committee hearing, but we, we've only got 15 battalions worth of Patriot um, missile defense systems, you know, and that number arguably is already stretched. So, you know, is that the kind of thing that we ought to be thinking about placing more of our money in? Uh, maybe there's a case to be made for a larger ground force uh, if, if Ukraine shows that <clears throat> urban operations are, they've always been hard to do, but um, that the, maybe that might be the future. So I, I just think this like, hey, let's just, let's just throw 190, 100 billion dollars at the, at the defense budget without really kind of sorting through, well, what do you want to prioritize or where do you want to spend it? Because my assumption is <clears throat> when that number comes out, it's kind of, you know, midterm election, people are going to put money in stuff that we may not really need or, or should be buying right now. Um, let me, um, I want to uh, give uh, a minute or so to discuss uh, the week ahead because there aren't that many uh, events, but quickly get your sense on extrapolate, right? I mean, because the Russians are bad does not necessarily mean that the Chinese will be equally bad, although the, China, the Russians have operational military experience, whereas the Chinese don't have a lot of operational military experience. And there's still autocratic systems built on subordinates lying to their superiors all the way up the chain of command uh, because nobody wants to get in trouble, shot, sent to jail, you know. Yeah. So what should, are, are there any sort of observations that maybe the Chinese military, right? I mean, if we got it so wrong on the Russian military, are we making the Chinese military 10 feet tall when they might be six feet tall or maybe four foot eight? Um, it's possible, Boggle. I mean, I really, I'm not an intelligence professional, uh, you know, but I, that's obviously been one of the surprises, uh, a, a consensus surprise. I can't tell you really, you know, what was in the 
<clears throat> Defense Intelligence Agency or Central Intelligence Agency and how, you know, the debates that may have gone on about Russia's military. Um, but I would say in general, <clears throat> you know, that has been a surprise about just how logistics, <clears throat> air power, um, you know, the, the loss of the Moskva last week, you know, they're just, they're things that someone probably knew. I mean, I used to have a research director who said there really aren't any surprises out there. Someone usually knows about it in some way, shape or form. Um, so I, I, I can't tell you about China as well either, but I, I guarantee that they're also going to be taking a look at this. And if they're, if they're smart, they're also going to be asking the same sorts of questions about, wow, if, if we thought Russia, and they've exercised with Russia, right? And, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on the, the name of some of these exercises recently, but um, there have been Chinese troops forces that have uh, exercised with the Russians as well as other countries. So, um, you know, autocracies, <clears throat> just because it's an autocracy doesn't mean that it's going to suboptimally perform from a military standpoint. Uh, you know, <laughs> you can look at 1941 and say, uh, or 1940 and say democracies didn't do that well at all against right. autocracies. So, there, there's nothing predetermined about your government and how well your military will perform or not perform. All right. And uh, very quickly, give us uh, a quick roundup on what it is the audience ought to be paying attention to this week. Well, it's the spring meetings the IMF World Bank hold this week. And I think there's a good view to take away on, okay, what's the state of the global economy? I think April 19th, <clears throat> World Bank will release their updated global economic outlook you know, there's not much there directly for defense, but these pressures from inflation, higher fuel prices, um, food shortages, insecurity, you know, how is that going to play into a global economic outlook and how in turn will that shape what people ought to be thinking about the security environment? Um, AEI is doing an event on uh, JADC2, which I think will be interesting. And then, of course, you know, we have a couple of the defense contractors reporting results. Uh, Lockheed on Tuesday, Saab Group, I believe, on Friday. Um, Kinetic in the UK does some uh, sales and revenue release. So, you know, this is kind of the first of the wave in earnings season. Uh, Atlanta Council also has a couple of events, and there'll be others on uh, that other, some of the other think tanks in Washington are doing on Russia, Ukraine. So, Fairly quiet because Congress was out this week, but um, a lot going on, obviously, in Russia, Ukraine and, you know, step back and, and use the World Bank uh, meeting and forecast to kind of think about some of the bigger factors that, that shape defense. Byron, thanks very much. Great to have you on and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. You got it, Bago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.